Welcome back, everybody. Thank you again for coming and being a part of this day. And so we are continuing in our Bible study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Go ahead and take your Bibles and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll get there in just a second. Um, we're, we're talking about the young people today because we've got camp coming up, and that's exciting. Um, I would say this, if there is one life lesson that I've always said that if I could communicate one life lesson to young adults, it would be this, life isn't fair. Just, just get used to it. Life doesn't always work out the way you think. The life has pain. There are t I know that sounds like a terrible message for but you have to <laughs> it'll help you. It's the power of negative thinking. <laughs> but life is not fair, and that is just a fact. And uh, there is pain and there are tears and relationships fail and people get sick and people die and we miss them and well, we'd do anything if we could change it, but we can't. And that sounds really depressing, but, but God doesn't leave us in that state, right? And so two of my favorite all-time words in the Bible are when you come across the spot where it says, but God. But God steps in and saves the day once again. And, and that is what he does. He solves it all. Man, I love the happy endings. If you like the movies with the weird endings, God help you. I like the happy endings. <laughs> I do. And let me just tell you something. If you've been with us through this study in 1 Corinthians, and most specifically in chapter 15, man, for me, I think 1 Corinthians 15 is fast approaching now being my favorite chapter in all the Bible. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15 is just an amazing chapter, and it actually contains one of my all-time favorite verses, which is the last verse we'll get to before the day's over today. When we started studying this chapter, we started out by talking about Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead and the fact that it is a historical fact and provable in so many different ways. And today we're going to finish chapter 15 by talking about our resurrection. And so this is the title of today's message. It's the victory of the resurrection, and we're definitely ending on a very high point. Uh, it's very exciting. So if you'll just follow along, I'm going to read from verse 51 down to the end of the chapter. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before this passage of Scripture, it is very good news. We are so, so very thankful for all that you have done. And you truly are the God that deserves our honor and praise as we have sung to you already and all the words of the songs of exalting you because 
Well, you're the one who comes and saves the day. Life without you is nothing, but there is another life. This is not all we get. This is not the end. There is more. And for those of us that have put our faith and trust in you, Lord, there is a glorious, glorious eternity. And this event, Lord, the rapture of the church and the catching away of the saints to spend eternity in glorified bodies without sin anymore, Lord, that is the day we're looking forward to. That is the day we're praying about. That is the thing where we're not looking for the man of sin. We're not looking for the tribulation. We're looking for you. We're looking for you. So I pray that you would teach us and you would encourage us today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the victory of the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees our resurrection, which means that our life is victorious. Amen? And we're going to see that in three specific ways. The first way is victory over the world. And this is the first three verses in this passage. It starts out by saying, Behold, I show you a mystery. Now, if you're newer to the Scriptures, if you're newer to First Baptist Church, maybe you've never studied this. Home folks, we know this already. But let me just define for you what a mystery really is. A mystery is not something mysterious. In the Bible, a mystery is not something that can't be known. Quite the opposite. A mystery in the Bible is just something that was not previously revealed in the Old Testament that is now revealed. It previously was not. Now it is revealed. And we find that definition in Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 25. Now to him that is of power to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest. How? And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. A mystery in the Bible is something that previously was not revealed in the scriptures, but now is revealed in the scriptures. So it would have been mysterious in a sense to the people of that first century. But now that the scriptures are here, well, it's all been solved. It's all been made clear. Now, the importance of understanding the mysteries is laid out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 1, where it starts out by saying, and of course we studied this months ago, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Who are the stewards of the mysteries of God? Well, all of us. All of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior. It says in verse 2, Moreover, it is required, not just suggested, it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. So it's critically important, the issue of these mysteries. Why? Because God requires stewardship of us all. He requires and expects that we will all be faithful in our understanding and then application of these topics which are the mysteries of God. Now, having said that, let me just say this. How can you possibly be a faithful steward of the mysteries of God if you don't actually even know what they are? In other words, you need to be studying the Bible regularly and systematically so that you can know what they are. Nobody's going to embarrass anybody here, but as you're just listening to this this morning, if you would just consider, if we stopped right here and, and cleared off a space, if this was a classroom and we said, there's a quiz, take out a piece of paper, write down what are the mysteries of God according to your understanding. If you would find yourself challenged to write down what they are, well, you're not really sure what they are. And if you're not really sure what they are, well, you're not really a good steward of it, are you? So this may be actually a really good day for you to have shown up, right? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to tell you exactly what they are. They're written for you in your notes. These are the seven New Testament mysteries. 
These are the things that God tells us. We're going to study just one of them, but here's all seven of them. Romans 11:25. it talks about the return of the nation of Israel as God's people. Man, I wish we had time to talk about all these. These are going to be for another day. We're just going to list them. Ephesians 3, 3 through 6, the Jews and the Gentiles become one body in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 26 and 27 talks about the indwelling Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8 talks about the spirit of Antichrist, how it, the mystery of iniquity works in this world even now. 1 Timothy 3, 16, the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, that God was manifest in the flesh, the mystery of godliness. And by the way, all these things you'll notice in the scriptures that you refer to, it uses the word mystery. God's not trying to hide it from you. He makes it very clear. How do I know it's the mystery? Well, it says mystery. It's real easy. Revelation 17 and verse number 5, mystery Babylon the Great. Well, that's the religion of the Antichrist that he will use in the last days to deceive the most amount of people. These are critically important topics, and the one that we have in front of us today, 1 Corinthians 15, is the rapture of the church. Every one of these doctrines were mysterious coming through the Old Testament. They didn't fully understand how all that was going to apply coming only with Old Testament revelation. But in the New Testament, every one of them is made perfectly clear. You say, I think I find some of these things in the Old Testament. If you do, you're only going to find them in type. You're only going to find them in picture. And they are in type and they are in picture, but they're not clearly and, and just openly spoken of that this is the way these things are going to happen. They're revealed clearly that way in the New Testament. And these seven New Testament mysteries are critically important for your life because these are the topics that will keep your doctrine straight. You think about the cults and you think about the false religions and you think about all the groups that teach false doctrine, they have messed up at least one or more of these mysteries. You mess up the right teaching of these seven things and you're going to start pointing off in the wrong direction before you know it, you're going to be in all kinds of heresy. I mean, these are critically important. That's why God says it's required that we be faithful stewards of these seven mysteries. Bad doctrine comes from not being a faithful steward. So the one we're going to talk about today is the rapture of the church. This is the Christian's blessed hope. This is the thing that we are looking forward to. And we're going to start off by talking about the details of the rapture. Let's break it down and look at what we can find out about understanding the details of how this is all going to play out. And we're going to look starting through verses 51 to 53. Now, what we're, going to, what we're going to learn is, and you take your own notes. I didn't put a ton of details. You write down stuff if you're interested. But here we see in verse 51, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So when the Bible talks about sleep, it's talking about physical death. We see that in John chapter 11, verse 11 and verse 13, where Jesus is talking about Lazarus. We need to go see Lazarus. He's sleeping. And the disciples thought, well, if he's sleeping, leave him alone. I mean, let him get some rest. The poor guy works hard. And Jesus is like, no, you don't get it. Lazarus is dead. You don't get it. Okay, so the Bible defines, comparing Scripture with Scripture, what he's talking about. Some people sleep. Most people eventually go through physical death. But there will be some people who will be alive at the time of the rapture of the church. Some people will never die. And that's, the, that's what we need to learn. Therefore, not every Christian 
will have to die. That's good news, right? I mean, it may be you, it may be me. We see that it will happen whenever it happens, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. How fast is that? I don't know. It's faster than, your eye can twinkle faster than it can blink. How about that? I mean, faster than you can measure, faster than you can think about it. I mean, just, just that quick, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and at the last trump. Now, this is an interesting thing, the last trump. And we're going to see other places of Scripture. We're going to compare this out, and we're going to figure out exactly what this means before we're done today. But the trump, the word trump, is the sound of a trumpet. And I say that because there are people who would think that 1 Corinthians 15 at the last trump means the seventh trumpet of the seven trumpet judgments in Revelation chapter 8, which is in the middle of the tribulation. That's what some people will think, thinking that the church goes through the tribulation because the rapture doesn't occur until the seventh trumpet. That's, that's their reasoning. Well, that's absolutely false, and the reason we know that it's false is because the word used is not trumpet. The word is trump, and the trump is the sound that a trumpet makes. Now, we're going to dig further into this, and you're going to get this, and, and it's pretty clear, but I just want to point out that it doesn't say the last trumpet. It says the last trump. That's what it says. So, as a result, there will be a trumpet blast at least two times, right? If there's going to be the last one, there has to be a first one. So, at least two times, and this will be the sound that will accompany the calling out of the saints. You tracking with me? This is what it says. Okay, then we see that there are two categories of people. We have the corruptible, so in verse 53, right, this corruptible must put on incorruption. Well, corruptible refers to those who have already died. So their body is corrupted. It's being corrupted, literally meaning it's decaying, rotting in the grave. And then there's the other category, this mortal. Well, the mortal refers to people that are yet alive, but they're mortal, so they're subject to death. So we're all mortal, right? But those that have already passed, well, they're corruptible. And then we see that at the time of the rapture, well, that's the time when we get our new bodies, not at some time previous to that. So when people pass in the Lord and their spirit goes to be with the Lord immediately, their bodies go to the grave, the new body doesn't come up until this event, until the event of the rapture of the church, where it says that it must put on, then, right, they must put on incorruption and the mortal must put on immortality. So those who have passed the corruption will put on incorruption. They will get a body, refer to last week's message, that will never again decay. And this mortal will put on a body that will never again be subject to death, immortality. And that's the story of the rapture of the church according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and some of the details. This is proof that the rapture is the event that gives us our new bodies, not before. Now, in order to get all of the details that accompany this event, there are some other passages of Scripture that we have to look at, and so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go next to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. A lot of you knew that we'd end up going there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. The same event, notice what it says here. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. We now know who they're talking about. 
that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. So if a person has passed away, but they were believers in Jesus Christ, well, they are considered asleep. It's a reference to the body, right? And if they're a Christian, well, they have hope because this future day is still coming. But people who die outside of Christ, well, that's a terrible day. That's a terrible day. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain. So now some have slept, most people. Some will be alive at the instant of this calling. We which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede, is another way to say that, them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. There it is. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And it is a great comfort. Okay, so what are the points that we learn from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Well, the things that we learn is that the believers that sleep, that have passed away, well, they get to rise first. Okay, so you say, man, I hope I get to be alive when it happens. Well, I kind of do too, but I don't think death is all that bad of a thing either, right? I mean, God's not going to set one up where one category, this is the small minority, by the way, gets a really cool ride, and the other people, well, you know, not so good. No, absolutely not. They, they get to go first. I mean, that's something, right? I mean, God's got the thing. So, so they get to go first. We see that clearly in this passage. Then the rest who are alive and remain, well, they will rise at some point after that. How much after that? Well, just hang on. We'll get to that. The Lord will descend from heaven, it says. So we do not meet Christ in heaven. Notice that. We meet Christ, it says, in the clouds. Well, those are those puffy white things out there. That's, that's in the air, in the clouds, in the air. Literally, he's talking about what the Bible refers to as the first heaven, the earth's atmosphere, the first heaven. The second heaven would be outer space where the planets are. The third heaven will be the, the place where God lives. Okay, so this is the place. We meet, the Lord comes down, we go up, we meet in the clouds, we meet in the air. Now the text doesn't say this, and I don't have time to even prove it, but it is my particular opinion that it is most likely that at that moment, while we are standing before the Lord Jesus Christ, the first moment face-to-face -face in front of the Lord Jesus Christ is in the cloud, is in the air, that will be the time and place when we will go through the event called the judgment seat of Christ, where all of us as believers will have our works done in the body since salvation judged. And he will judge our works, and those things that have been done in the flesh will be burned away, right, like wood, hay, and stubble. And those things that were done in the Spirit, those things will remain like gold, silver, and precious stones. And I believe that this event takes place in the air, in the clouds, because that stuff, in my mind at least, needs to be done away with before we then ascend all the way to the third heaven with Jesus Christ. That has to be done away with first. It does say that we will be caught up together. Caught up. Uh, you may know that the word rapture, we always refer to the rapture of the church, that word rapture actually doesn't appear in your Bible. It doesn't appear anywhere. But the word that means the exact same thing, we just 
use a word that we use. The word rapture means to be caught up. That's exactly what it means. So to be caught up, well, that's what, exactly what the word rapture means. You could call it the catching up if you want to. Um, you say catch up a lot. People might think you're talking about something else. But rapture works. I mean, it's the same thing. And we see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And then it talks about this trump of God. And the trump of God is also called a shout. And it's called a voice. The shout, the voice, the trump. They're all synonymous now. See, we're beginning to understand a little bit more what we're talking about in the trump of God and what that is all about. We need some more information. Open to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, here we have the catching up or catching away of the Apostle John, who in this case is a picture, a representation of the entire body of Christ. And so John is caught up into the clouds. It says in Revelation 4 verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me. Well, there you go. Which said, Come up hither. And I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So in this bit of information, to add to the pile of information we're gathering, we see that there's a door that's opened in heaven. Now, a diligent student of the Bible will find out that that phrase, that the heavens opened or a door is opened in heaven only three times, in all of your Bible. And in each case, somebody is going up or somebody's coming down. So in this case, John goes up, representing the church. The church goes up. You go to Revelation chapter 19 and verse number 11, that heavens are opened and somebody comes down. Jesus Christ is coming down in his second coming. Where's the third one? Well, the third one is at the end of Acts chapter 7. You say, what's going on there? Well, you go figure it out. I mean, you want me to do all your work for you? You go figure it out. It's pretty cool. Go check it out. You'll actually learn some cool stuff. I'm not going to talk about it today. Somebody's going up. Somebody's coming down. You've got to check it out. Okay, then it talks about a voice again. In this case, it says, as of a trumpet talking. Isn't that interesting? So now the trump, it's taking on more of a vocal characteristic, and actually John hears a specific command. He hears audibly words that he understands where it says come up hither heard by john a type of the church john by the way who was alive when that happened he didn't die and then was called up so john would represent in this case the believers who were alive and remain at the moment of the rapture of the church so the noise that is made at the rapture is actually a voice that we will understand and we will be called out verbally from this earth and then it says immediately I was in the spirit immediately so how much later do those that are alive and remain go up after those that are dead in Christ first go up well I don't know exactly how long I just know that John who represents those who are alive says immediately so I can't imagine it's much of a delay how about you one other place to look at, John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. Sound familiar? Okay, go down to verse number 9 of that passage. Jesus clarifies, I am the door. 
By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Now, there is an application to the moment of salvation in this passage, but I want you to make some other comparative study as we go through this. So, again, this is Bible study morning, so we're getting into it. The shepherd of the sheep enters in by the door, and Jesus is the door. How does he enter? And he, I don't know, he's Jesus. What you can see from this passage is, though, he calls his sheep out. He calls them out. That's a rapture. And when he calls them out, he calls them out by name. It's like the story of Lazarus, when Lazarus was in the grave, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. See, that's a picture. That's a picture. And that's what he says that he's going to do. Now, there's some other information that I think is important for you to understand, and that is under this category. And the next three references we're going to look at are under this category that God's voice, when God's voice speaks, the Bible says it thunders. It thunders. And you've got to get this. Job 37. At this also my heart trembleth and is moved out of his place. Hear attentively the noise of his voice. And the sound that goeth out of his mouth, he directeth it under the whole heaven, and is lightning unto the ends of the earth. After it a voice roareth, he thundereth with the voice of his excellency. He will not stay them when his voice is heard. God thundereth marvelously with his voice. Great things doeth he which we cannot comprehend. This theme is all through the Old Testament. You can search this for yourself and find multiple references. I gave you only two more. Revelation chapter 10. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now you're thinking, what does this all mean? Well, I chose this next reference last to help you kind of put together what it means. John chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Jesus Christ speaking, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Verse 29, the people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. They said that it thundered. And others said, an angel spake unto him. A voice comes from heaven, and different audiences hear different things. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so let's put it all together. We've gotten the passages of Scripture that apply to this context. We're going to put them all together into one story. So unlike typical notes, I have for you a couple of sentences written out. I did that just so that you could take it home and look at it and compare and, and do what you need to do. I didn't put a lot of other notes in, but this is kind of where it all comes together. I'll just read it. It's in your notes. Any day now, without warning, quicker than you can blink an eye, a door will open in heaven and there will be a great noise. The unsaved will hear thunder. But the saved will hear God's voice trumpeting their name and a personal call out of this world. The dead in Christ will rise first, but those that are alive will, will rise immediately after, all in our glorified bodies and all to meet Jesus Christ in the clouds, where we will stand before him in judgment of our works. 
after the judgment seat, we will follow him up to the third heaven while the tribulation begins here on earth. Now, this is not the text of Scripture to get into this, okay? But, since we're on the subject, briefly, I do want to mention, what is the next point in your notes? The timing of the rapture. The timing of the rapture is not addressed in 1 Corinthians 15, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But I want you to realize that the timing of the rapture is what we call imminent. Imminent. It could happen at any moment. Okay, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And maybe one of the greatest reasons for that is because John, as a picture and type of the church in Revelation chapter 4, when he's called out, you find that after that, you never hear of the church ever again throughout the book of Revelation. From chapter 5 all the way to chapter 19, there is no more reference of the church. That is a reference of the tribulation because the church is out. The church is not there. Revelation 1, 2, 3, church, 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 church. Revelation 4, 1, the church is out. Revelation 5 to 19, when Jesus comes back, no more church. There is no church. Why? Because the church doesn't go through the tribulation. There are some other things because the rapture of the church is an event on God's calendar. There have been a lot of events on God's calendar, but the rapture of the church, friends, is the next event on God's calendar. There is nothing else that needs to happen before the rapture of the church could happen. That means that it's possible that the rapture of the church could come before we're done this morning. It's possible. According to God's calendar, nothing else has to happen. The last major thing that happened was Israel becoming a nation again in 1948. And that is, most would agree, I believe, is the application of Matthew 24, 32. And when the fig tree, which always represents the nation of Israel, national Israel, by the way, not spiritual Israel, spiritual Israel, meaning their relationship with God, is referred to as an olive tree. The fig tree is Israel as a national entity, as a geopolitical entity, is always referred to as the fig tree, began to put forth some life. They were gathered together again after 1,900 years as a nation, in 1948. Hosea 6, 1 and 2 is prophetic to the nation of Israel and says that after two days, right, after two days he will revive us and the third day he'll live in our sight, we'll live in his sight. After two days, well if you know what the Lord, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, you've got Israel being God's people for four days right, 4,000 years up to the coming of Christ, until then now they are replaced by the church in, in, for a time. It's a Gentile bride of Christ. Israel's put on pause. One of the mysteries of the New Testament is that Israel will come back again to be God's people at the end of the tribulation, which is after two days, 2,000 years since the coming of Jesus Christ. There's other references to the overall timeline that deals with all of human history, and that would be after six days. And that is the idea. There's 6,000 years of human history, just like in creation. And then on the seventh day, God rested. Well, that seventh day is a millennial day, a 1,000-year day, in which, well, we're at rest. Why? The devil is bound in a pit for 1,000 years, and, well, we're at rest. And so we have these pictures but the church doesn't go through the tribulation because, well, the tribulation is referred to 
in the Old Testament as the time of Jacob's trouble. Who's Jacob? Jacob is Israel. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. It's not the time of the church's trouble. There's no church in the tribulation. That's ridiculous. And so those that might think that it is, well, they are just having to twist or ignore or change things that the Bible says. The timing of the rapture, again, is not the text of 1 Corinthians 15, but while we're studying it, I think you should know that. There's something else about the timing of the rapture, and I believe that now we get into the types and the pictures from the Old Testament. So we'll look in Song of Solomon, chapter number 2. And the book of Song of Solomon is the story of Solomon, right, who had a thousand right wives, well, concubines, wives, and together, and, you know, not for the wisest man that ever lived. I don't know how he worked that out. But anyway, <laughs> Solomon is the son of David and uh, a type of Jesus Christ, and he has one true love. And, and that one true love is, is the focus of his love song, the Song of Solomon. And that's what that book's all about. It's a beautiful love story. And through that, we see something very interesting. In Song of Solomon chapter 2, we're going to jump in at verse number 8. It's a dialogue back and forth between the bride and the bridegroom. The voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Notice this. For lo, the winter is past. The rain is over. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of birds is come. The voice of the turtle is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vine with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. That's a picture of the rapture of the church. That would have been in mystery form in the Old Testament, but now we can put the pieces together because it's now revealed. And Jesus Christ calls unto his bride, the church, Arise, my love, my fair one, come away with me. When is the timing of this calling? Well, it says, the winter is past. The rain is over. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of birds has come. The voice of the turtle is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with a tender grape give a good smell. It's in the springtime. It's in the springtime. And according to pretty much everybody's calendar, within a day or two, summer doesn't officially begin until June 21st. Summer doesn't officially begin until June 21st. You know, every year on June 22nd, I just have a day of mourning. <laughs> I've been doing this for years. I'm like, man, I got to wait till next spring. Can I tell you young people something? Let's just say, we don't know, but let's just say because the coming of the Lord is imminent, it is the next event on God's calendar, nothing else has to happen before it happens. It will be in the springtime of whichever year it comes. What if, what if the rapture was scheduled for, let's just say, Saturday? And what if this week was the last chance you had to respond to him? You think you'd listen a little closer? You think you'd take it a little more serious? Do you think we'd pray harder for him?
Do you realize that what I just described, it's possible, isn't it? Isn't it possible? Some of you guys like to track end times events and current events and things that are going on. It sure is getting close, ain't it? Listen, we need to be prepared for such a thing. The rapture could be any day now. But don't quit your job and sell your house yet. Because Luke 19, 13, Jesus says to his servants, Occupy until I come. Occupy until I come. Has God called you to do some great work, but you have to prepare yourself and go through Bible Institute training and get some experience? Okay, then God better come. When he comes back and calls time, he better find you doing exactly whatever it is he's called you to do. If he's got a ministry, he better find you faithfully doing your ministry. If he's called you to prepare for ministry, he better find you faithfully preparing for ministry. That's what you need to be doing. Don't be foolish. We have victory over the world because we leave it before God judges it. We have victory over the world because we're not going to be here when the hailstorm comes. The next thing, we have victory over the grave, verses 54 to 57. We have victory over the grave. It says, when this corruptible body must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality, then our victory is realized, amen. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. When the rapture comes, then our victory is realized. Because now, at that moment, death is no more. Death is no more. Not for us anyway, right? And it says, as it is written, that comes from Isaiah 25 and verse number 8. He will swallow up death in victory. That's where he's taken it from. He goes on and says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Again, referring to the two categories of people. O death, where is thy sting? Written to those who are alive at the time of the rapture. Death never stings them. O grave, where is thy victory? Written to those who have died previously, almost everybody. Because the grave can't keep them. The grave can't keep them. What the Holy Spirit does in those two verses is he gives us a, well, a loose translation of Hosea 13, 14, where it says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. You could reference Psalm 49, 15, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me, Selah. So God gives us this victory over death and this victory over the grave. And another Old Testament picture, another type that is hidden in the Old Testament that now you can go back and find is the example of Enoch. It's the example of Enoch. Because up until this time, death and the grave had, well, a near perfect record, didn't they? Almost 100%. Of everybody that died, stayed dead. (laughs) But God, every rule has an exception, doesn't it? Every rule has an exception, and that's why we say the exception proves the rule. So for death, Hebrews 9.27 is the rule, and is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. It is appointed unto men once to die. That's the rule. But there's an exception. 
Genesis 5.24. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Boom, just like that. He raptured him out. He's the exception. And only Enoch, only one man, only Enoch, stands as the only man who never dies physically. Only Enoch. You say, hey, wait, 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 wait. What about Elijah? I'm glad you asked. Because Elijah did also get raptured out without ever dying. But Elijah's coming back in Revelation chapter 11. He's going to die there. He's going to die there. You see, Enoch stands as the only man in history who has never, ever, 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 ever tasted of death. Ever. But you know, there's a whole bunch of other people who will never die. It'll be all of us if that rapture's on Saturday, like I hope so. Because Enoch is a type and a picture of the church of Jesus Christ who gets raptured out, oh, by the way, just before the judgment of Noah's flood. Because the church goes out before the judgment of the tribulation. See how that fits together? He goes out without ever dying. So it says in Matthew 24, 37, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be, which includes a picture of a guy who's raptured out before it comes. Well, for the grave, those who have died, well, they stay dead. Well, there's, there's some exceptions. We've got the Lord Jesus, right? Well, you say we've got Lazarus and others. Yeah, well, there's actually a number of people who were raised from the grave. Well, they only to die again. I mean, I mean, I think so. Otherwise, they're walking around somewhere. I don't know. I mean, I think they died again. But Jesus didn't, right? It just once, that was it. And then, well then, he lives forever. So, today though, for, I mean, look, for the vast majority of everybody, for all of us today, the general fact is, is that death has a sting. Death has a stinger. It does. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Therefore, the law reveals sin, which in turn brings death. The law is the thing that reveals your sin, and the sin is the thing that brings your death. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. We die because of our sin, Romans 6.23, right? The wages of sin is death. We die because we have sin. Well, sin is empowered by the law. And that's Romans 7. Starting in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. I was coveting all along, but I didn't know it. Until God's law showed up and said, oh yeah, by the way, that's sin. He's like, oh, well, that's sin, okay. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. Without the law, sin was dead. And you go down to verse 11. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. 
But it doesn't end there, right? Because it says, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that we have complete victory now over death and over the grave. How is that? Well, it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Can I just emphasize the word our Lord? Because if he's not your Lord, you don't have the victory, friend. We have the victory because he's our Lord. I have the victory because he's my personal Lord and Savior. It doesn't matter if he's the Savior of the whole world if you've never received the gift. If you don't make him your Lord, you don't have the victory. You can get it. You can get it today. Because Saturday's coming, y'all. Saturday's coming. Now, don't go out of here saying, I said it's going to be Saturday. I said, what if? We have victory over the grave because it can't hold us forever. Amen. It can't hold us forever. Third point, victory over the flesh. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren. Now he's talking to us. He's talking to the saved, right? Therefore. Anytime you see the therefore, you look and see what it's there for, right? Simple rule. As a result of having this incredible promise of glory, as a result of the, the promise of the rapture and the glorified bodies and all of these things, he goes on to say there's a certain way you ought to behave. Since you know all that stuff's out there, since the glory is promised, since your ticket is punched, since you know that you have the victory in all of these things, there's a way you need to behave. And this principle of laying out, telling you the beauty and the glory of the end of the story, then using it as a motivation to get you to live right today is fairly common in the Bible. It's fairly common in the Bible. For example, we see that in 1 John chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All promises of eternal glory. Verse number three. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. If you know the glory is sure, if you know you're in, if you know he's done all that, if you know that your life has been changed, he's taken your feet out of the miry clay and set them on a solid rock, you will purify yourself. And I'm always suspect of those that say they prayed some magic prayer and their life has never shown purity. I'm just suspect. I'm not your judge. He expects that the promise of glory will be the motivation necessary to get you to do well, what you should have been doing anyway. That's exactly what verse 58 is. Therefore, my beloved brethren, because all this wonderful stuff is guaranteed to you, be steadfast, unmovable. Don't quit. Don't stop. Don't back up. Don't get mad and run away. Don't blame it on somebody else. Don't blame it on an opinion or a bad thing that somebody said to you and looked at you crossways and they didn't give me this opportunity and I can't believe they said what they said and they did what they did. 
That's not steadfast, and that's not unmovable. Therefore, be steadfast, unmovable. I understand that it's hard. I understand that ministry's tough. Galatians 6, 9, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. God expects you to continue and not faint and not quit, to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding. Always abounding. Not just existing, not just treading water, not just trying to barely keep up. Abounding. That's the abundant life. Jesus Christ came that we would have life and that we would have it more abundantly. And you know what? Once you show that you're faithful to do something for the Lord, you're going to find even more to do, aren't you? And that process just keeps on going until eventually there's so much work to do that, well, you don't, you find that you don't really have much time left for anything else in your life. You ever notice that? That's abounding in God's work. And from a overall bird's eye view of this church or any church I've ever been a part of, I'd say about 20% of you understand, understood what I just said. About 20% of you do about 80% of the work. And they find themselves always being called upon to do more and more of the work, well, because they're faithful, and they'll do it. And they've already counted the cost, and they've already determined that my softball league isn't all that important, or whatever it is. And I'm willing to forsake that if I can help serve the Lord even more. Always abounding. Always abounding. Always abounding. In what? Well, in the work of the Lord. What's the work of the Lord? Well, the work of the Lord is the work that the Lord did when the Lord was doing work. And that's defined for us in John chapter 17. Jesus is praying to the Father, verse 4, I've glorified thee on the earth, I've finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He's not talking about the crucifixion, he hadn't died yet when he prayed that. I've already finished the work you gave me to do. The whole chapter describes the work, and it's making disciples. It says in verse number 8, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. The work of the Lord is the Great Commission. That's the only work you've been given to do. The work of the Lord is to make disciples. That's the only work you've been given to do. Therefore, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of making disciples. That's what he's calling you to do because he's already promised all the good stuff at the other end. Why should we be so steadfast and abound in ministry? Well, it says, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen? You know what the end is. You know how it all plays out. You know it's all worth it. So just keep doing it. Labor in vain actually appears a bunch of times in the Scriptures, and it means exactly what you think it means. It means that you work towards a result, but you don't get the result. I've labored in vain. I, I tried, I worked, I worked, I thought I was going to get a result, I didn't get the result. Paul talks about it in his ministry in Galatians 4, 9 through 11, but now after that you have known God, or rather are known of him, how turn ye again, Galatians, to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto you desire again to be in bondage, talking about legalistic standards and rules in their life. You observe days and months and times and years. I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. 
You go back to live a legalistic life under the law after you've been set free in liberty in Christ? I've wasted my time on you. Philippians 2.6, Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. How do I know that I have not labored in vain if you continue to hold forth the word of Christ? 1 Thessalonians 3.5, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. You quit running. We didn't see the end. But it says, for as much as you know, it's not in vain. You know it's not in vain. Can I just say that if you have labored and sweat and tried and labored and continued and served the Lord for years and years and you have real experience, there are times when you get weary and well-doing. There are times when you might think your labor's in vain. Ministry's hard. You work, you labor, you sweat, you cry, you pray, and people just don't care. They don't respond. You explain the gospel clearly, simply, they still won't receive it. You sacrifice time away from your family to help make disciples, but the disciples just refuse to do what's right. They refuse to surrender to the Lord. They refuse to serve. You study day and night. You preach. You teach people, and people thank you for what they're learning, but they never show up for prayer meetings. They never show up for the Lord's Supper. They never show up for life groups. They never show up for work days. They never show up for evangelism. Make you think it's in vain, doesn't it? You work together with people. You trust them. You delegate responsibility to them only to find out they stab you in the back and they work the crowd to try and take your place. You know, one of the modern temptations of ministry today is visible success. Numbers. Nickels and noses. How many people? How much money? And you know what? I'm sickened every time I hear another story about a ministry that seems to have the blessings of God because they have multiplied thousands of people involved only to find out that very often, certainly not always, very often those ministries are dirty. They're dirty. And they're dirty because they made compromises. And they made compromises because there's thousands and thousands of Laodiceans that are flocking to their groups. And by definition, the church of Laodicea loves themselves more than they love the Lord. And if your church is such a net that catches all these people that love themselves and find themselves very happy and comfy in your ministry, well, maybe that says something about your ministry. I can't judge. I can't know the details. I'm just saying I've seen this over and over and over again. You think about it. But the Bible says we don't quit. We remain steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because we have the victory over the world and over the grave. Well, not only that, we also have the victory over the flesh. We have the victory over the flesh. The promises of God allow us to crucify the influence of the flesh and to walk in the Spirit by faith. Our labor is not in vain for three specific reasons. Number one, because we minister God's Word, and it does all the work. Isaiah 55, 10, and 11, For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish 
that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. God's word does its own work. Our labor's never in vain if we're putting forth God's word. Our labor's not in vain, and we have the victory over the flesh because there is a resurrection. This life is not all you get. There is a rapture. There is eternal life. There is no sting of death. Paul said in Romans 8.18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And we have victory over the flesh, and we need not ever go backwards in our ministry. Why? Because it's not in vain. Why? Because God rewards our labor. There's a payday coming. Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward His name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. I mean, what else are you living for anyway? Seriously. What else you got going on that's better than that? Temporal pleasures? Come on, really? In light of this? See, this chapter started with the proof for Jesus' resurrection from over 500 eyewitnesses. And then Paul goes on and gives logical, reasonable argumentation to solidify that proof. We saw that the resurrection has a three-part order to it, which motivates us to personal ministry. And the crowning prize is that our resurrection is now secure, and we are promised new, glorified bodies, which gives us victory in our daily lives even now because of it. And at the end of the day, Come on, isn't that all that really matters? Isn't that all that you think about when you have to stand over the casket of a loved one who has given their life to Jesus Christ prior to that? That's all that matters. That's all that matters. And all of this is available to all of us with only one condition. Have you received him personally? Have you received him personally? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before you,